Hi, I'm Andrew, and this is the Daily Keenon podcast about today's global crisis. The coronavirus pandemic is dramatically disrupting not only our own daily lives, but also society itself. This show features conversations with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers about the deeper economic, political, and technological consequences of the pandemic. It's the daily podcast trying to make long-term sense out of the chaos of today's global crisis. Coronavirus crisis continues to engulf us. Rates in the United States, at least, seem to be going up again. We're still uh, under the iron fist or the iron heel of this awful disease. Um, a couple of weeks ago, we had... Uh, Maya Alexandri, uh, a woman who's on the front lines of the crisis, an EMT doctor uh, working in New York. Today, we're going to take a few steps back and talk to one of the world's leading thinkers on medical systems, the University of Pennsylvania, distinguished academic and doctor, uh, Professor Ezekiel Emanuel. Uh, Zeke, are you a professor or just a doctor? I'm a professor. I'm a university professor, as they call me. And you're not only a university professor, but you're also the author of a really, really timely new book, Which Country Has the World's Best Healthcare? So, uh, Zeke, to make sure uh, everyone stays throughout this uh, interview, we won't get to the juicy bits first. Don't reveal <laughs> which country has the, the world's best healthcare. But let's talk about COVID first. Um, we've had several conversations, as I said earlier, about uh, the impact of COVID. And everyone said the same thing, that this crisis is revealing and exposing all the best and worst about the various healthcare systems around the world. Is that a fair observation? Um, I'm not sure it's quite fair yet, actually. I think it's revealing and exposing uh, a lot about the public healthcare systems. That is how we respond to infection infections widespread in the community. Um, and that is been, uh, COVID has really been a test of the public health responses, less, I think, a test of the healthcare systems in general. Um, sometimes it, it does have a, uh, an element of the healthcare system. Maya argued, and, and I'd be interested in your take on this, that in the US at least, what she's been troubled with is the way in the, in the midst of this emergency, the hospitals haven't got out of their old, perhaps capitalist way or competitive market way of thinking, and they're still competing with one another. Is that a, a fair critique of the way in which the U.S. healthcare system is confronting the virus? Well, I think the healthcare system, each hospital has tried to do its best, and they've often collaborated locally. But I think some of the uh, problems of the healthcare system are... Uh, revealed by this, the inequities in who gets into the hospital, uh, the uh, way that you know some hospitals are located in inner cities, are publicly supported, are not nearly as uh, well financed and well secured as private hospitals, uh, maybe parts of universities. And I think we have seen certainly in New York that disparity uh, arising. And I do think it you know, it does require resources to respond to this because you need to convert rooms to single rooms. You need a lot of PPE. You had to have a lot of uh, ventilators initially. Um, and, you know, different hospitals had different capacity to handle those problems. 
you do have a, a coda in your book. I don't know how you squeezed it in so quickly, but you do have a co- what you call a coda at the end of the book about coronavirus. On a scale of one to 10, how would you rate the American response? Medically, uh, at least. You know, I'm a professor. We usually do ABCs. But one to 10, I would say uh, probably three or four at best. So a C. Yes. Barely passing. Yes. Whoop. Oh, my God. So and I, uh, do th- I do think we've actually not done a very good job. We've not done a good job on the public health side. And I think our healthcare systems, uh, they've tried to do a, a good job, but we've been hampered in many ways. And that's an interesting contrast to some other countries. Taiwan at the top of the list, Germany. Yeah, you do. You do really uh, single out Taiwan as a model on, on the virus front. Um, your book is, of course, a global analysis. I think you compare 11 or 12 different healthcare systems around the world. But my reading of it, at least, is it's kind of America-centric. Uh, you're based in the U.S., and, and this is a book which is written in English for at least primarily an American audience. You say quite troublingly that in the 50s and 60s, the American America had the best healthcare system in the world, uh, but it no longer does. What what was its strength in the 50s and 60s? Well, I think it had an extensive network of community hospitals that were built up. It had uh, pioneering medicine. If you wanted to do medical research, you came to the United States. Uh, so it had a lot of the cutting edge technology and a lot of, frankly, the cutting edge technology was developed right here in the United States, uh, whether it was you know intensive care units, uh, cardiac surgery, uh, cancer chemotherapies. Um, so I think that you know we, we did a lot of that pioneering Work. We also developed, you know, polio vaccine and and really put uh, vaccine development uh, on steroids, as it were. Mixed metaphor there, I guess. Uh, uh, But I think that we, you know, we did uh, as the system grew, as the system became established, we did lose both the personal touch with uh, patients and uh, we lost our way as to what was really important. And now, you know, maybe what your uh, previous guest was suggesting, you know, this issue of uh, driving revenue, driving margin has become much more important, whether you're a for-profit entity in the healthcare system or a not-for-profit entity in the healthcare system. And I think that's turned out to be a big mistake. And we can't, of course, blame all this on Donald Trump or his administration, as some people like to do. Uh, well, uh, I do think you can blame a lot of the bad COVID response on Donald Trump and his leadership or lack thereof. Uh, but I think the uh, problems with the healthcare system are decades in the making and they're not uh, simple. You know, the, the really became manifest sort of towards the late 70s and have been just growing ever since. So give me a, 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 a parallel narratives, uh, Zeke. Let's go back to the 70s. At that point, you argue America probably had the best healthcare system in the world. Now it no longer does. Who or what kinds of countries or systems have risen to the top over the last 40 or 50 years? Well, uh, we single out uh, or single out. We identify a group of countries. Here's what I would say. Uh, An efficient country has to have universal coverage, all 100% of people involved. You have to have a simple system so it's easy to I'm going to jump in here, Zeke, just, just very briefly. Are you one of those dangerous socialists who believe in nationalized healthcare system? Is that what a single system is? No, 
you don't <laughs> not at all uh so you know one of the point one of the things i point out in the book is you can look at germany and the netherlands they actually have private insurance as a person you go and you choose which private insurance company you want to get covered by they're called sickness funds there the government then pays those insurance companies uh, based upon your age, your sex, and your health status, how sick you are, you have to pay a premium. But then you pretty much, they provide, they coordinate the care, they pay the doctors and hospitals. That's hardly what people think of as single payer. We have that kind of system in the United States in Medicare Advantage. That's the uh, managed care part of Medicare. And in the exchanges, and I actually think that that would be a very good system for the United States uh, to adopt. But you have to have universal coverage, relatively simple system for people to get coverage through. Uh, I think you also need a budget because you have to stay within financial uh, reason. Uh, you probably want to uh, have a system of setting prices so that you don't have drug prices, which are way out of whack, as we do in the United States, or hospital prices, which are way high for private insurance. Uh, so there are you know, five or six different things you actually want to emphasize. Uh, one of the important things I think for, or two of the important things I think for the 21st century is it's all about chronic care. 85 cents of every dollar we spend in the United States is for people who have chronic illness, whether it's heart disease or emphysema or diabetes or asthma. Um, and we really need to focus in on improving chronic care. That's not just an American problem. It's a universal problem. It has to be more proactive. It's a, it's a problem people deal with every day of their life. We also need better mental health care. And I think that's increasingly being recognized. Uh, but no country that we looked at really had it solved. In terms of your analysis and, and, and this, com this, this comparative view of, of healthcare systems around the world, um, when it comes to the U.S., are, are there bad boys you identify in the system? Is it greedy doctors? Is it the pharma industry? Is it political systems? Uh, or is it perhaps an American public that's so obsessed with its health that they spend far too much time going to the doctor? <laughs> well, it's certainly not the last latter. We don't actually go to the doctor nearly as much as the Germans do. The Germans go much more frequently, which was a surprise to me. Um, what, is that? what does that tell us about the difference between Americans and Germans? <laughs> we actually don't obsess with the doctor so much as, you know, diet fads and uh, things like that. But I do think that it's, a, it's the structure of the system which brings out the worst rather than the best. So it's a structure of a system that gets the drug companies to only obsess about making profits uh, and not necessarily focusing on the most uh, impactful drugs for the health. You know, and we can see this by their developing very expensive cancer drugs that might prolong life a month or two months, uh, but ignoring whole areas uh, where the pay, uh, the, the, the price that they can sell the drugs for might be less, uh, but from a health standpoint might be more important. That's a perverse incentive we have in the system. It's a system incentive and then it's a drug companies responding to that system incentive. And that's really why you need to think about how do we change various parts of the system to change the incentives. I think one way of solving that drug problem is to say, listen, we're gonna pay prices that are related to the how much those drugs improve health. Uh, and that's called value-based pricing. And we've, I think that would change the incentives from what they are now to have drug companies focus much more on drugs that are actually going to improve 
uh, uh, more people's health and improve their health more. You note in the book, in the conclusion, that in, in, on average terms, fewer people in the U.S. have access to the system and it's more expensive. You conclude with six lessons, six lessons, sorry, for, for improving the U.S. healthcare system. I think you, you mentioned one of them. Very briefly, uh, Zeke, what are those lessons? Well, you know, I did say we need universal coverage. We also need a simpler system. We need to control drug prices. I've already mentioned those three. One that I think is super important is uh, covering children. So right now in the United States, if you have private insurance, uh, the family pays the full cost for insuring the children. Uh, they pay a much larger premium out of pocket, and the cost for family coverage is about $20,000. This compared to an individual where it's uh, about 6000 between six and $7,000, and an individual pays $1,000 uh, of the premium. Uh, that is no country, no other country does that. So if you even look at the Netherlands and Germany, where you, again, have these private insurance companies, the government pays for children. So a worker with a family and an individual worker, they're making the same amount of money. They pay the same payroll tax to the government to fund health care. Uh, but then the government covers the children. And you know, it's a very heavy burden on families to pay the health insurance costs of children. And I think this is one area where we do signal how much we value children by the fact that, you know, we don't pay for children. Maybe we don't actually consider them an investment. Every other country considers children an investment and society pays for the cost of kids' care. I think we should do that. As I mentioned also, chronic care care for people who have chronic illnesses and people with mental illnesses, which turns out to be a very large portion of the population, those, we have innovative programs in the United States. Actually, in those areas, we are very innovative. We need to scale those programs. We need to take them from boutiques that apply to one healthcare system or one practice and really scale them. And one of the things you can note in America is when you do chronic care well, you don't you typically don't bring people into the hospitals. You have doctors who are proactively reaching out to those patients, helping them manage their insulin or manage their heart disease on a day-to-day -day basis um, and providing them support so that they stay healthy. They don't have an exacerbation. They don't have to go to the emergency room and get admitted to the hospital, which drives the prices way or the cost of healthcare way up. And I think the, we have, as I said, a lot of innovative experiments. We need to generalize them and we need to provide financial incentives for hospital do and doctors to adopt more of those programs uh, around. So those are some of the, the reforms we really need in, in the American system. And for the American consumer of healthcare, the news isn't all bad. You note that uh, China has a much worse medical system than the United <laughs> States, uh, which is interesting given that these are the two dominant superpowers in, in the 21st century. Why is China so bad? Well, China's biggest problem is that it's very heavily focused on the hospital, hospital care. They really don't have anything like the physician office. So if you're a good doctor in China, all the prestige, all the money is associated with working at a hospital. They, and then they have grades of hospitals. They have a, a, a sort of a low-level community hospital, a secondary hospital, and then the premier hospitals, which tend, of course, to be in Beijing and Shanghai and big cities. Um, so if you're sick, 
You want to go to the premier hospitals. Um, but that's a very inefficient way of developing uh, or getting care to people, especially when, as I mentioned, the big problem is chronic illness because, you know, you know, hospital is not the way to address a chronic illness. Um, but the Chinese have no mechanism to actually deliver care outside. And we saw this in the COVID case, right? They built, I think it was 12 hospitals in Wuhan to address COVID. Um, but that's that's not a solution. Uh, that That's a mistake. Uh, and that's a mistake built upon the fact that they uh, don't have outpatient care, uh, the way we put it. Almost every developed country, not almost, every developed country, you're seeing the hospital sector go down, downsizing smaller hospitals uh, because we're able to deliver care out of the hospital. And in again, in the situation where most patients have chronic illness, you want to deliver it at home. You want to deliver it outside the hospital because, you know, chronic illness, you know, the solution to diabetes is not rush them to the hospital and treat them for seven days and discharge them. The solution is to get patients to actually stick to their diet, exercise, monitor their blood sugar, take their insulin uh, regularly. And that's not best done at a hospital. Zeke, you teach at the university, as I mentioned earlier, University of Pennsylvania on the, the Excella Corridor. Yes. One that uh, Joe Biden travels up and down on regularly, maybe not now, but no doubt he will uh, when, when, when this crisis comes to an end. If you got a call from Uncle Joe and said, uh, Zeke, you've, you've done all this research on, on different healthcare systems around the world. What advice would you give me on my healthcare policy? Would you say go back to Obamacare? Or would you say start all over again? Well, I, I don't think we're going to start all over again. Part of the reason I resisted this book was because I think people who were asking me the question, which country has a world's best health, thought we should just go and find out that country and take whatever they have and bring it to America. It's not going to work that way. But there are a number of solutions uh, or reforms that we do need to implement. And I do think we need to think bigger than just tinkering with Obamacare. One of the problems, uh, I'll just put it out there, is when the Supreme Court made its ruling related to Obamacare allowing the states to not expand Medicaid, that actually prevented us of having a path towards universal coverage because we now have 14 states, which represent a third of the American population that have refused to expand Medicaid and seem implacable, like they will never expand Medicaid. Well, that means we don't have a path to universal coverage. We can never get to 99, 100% coverage. So we need a different approach. My brother and I just wrote an op-ed suggesting, well, we have to nationalize Medicaid. We have to take this away from the states. Now, if we're going to do that, we should also probably reform the system to make it simpler uh, to collapse uh, parts of Medicare, Medicaid, the exchanges, and to make them one system that's much simpler so that Americans have either employer-sponsored insurance or a governmental program uh, uh, that allows them to pick a private insurer. I think that's a way to go uh, that would make the system much simpler. I would recommend that to uh, President Biden. Uh, I think similarly regulating drug prices is going to be important. I think similarly making other parts of the system affordable. I have long suggested that going to your primary care doctor you have to pick a primary care doctor and going to them, you should not have to have any deductible or any copay uh, that will build up the primary care sector. It will also uh, remove the financial barriers for people to get uh, necessary health care. So I think those are some of the 
reforms that we need to adopt in this country. Well, if uh, if Joe Biden or any of his people are listening, I hope they give you a call. Have you heard from the, from his team yet? They they should be connecting with you. I mean, if uh, if they it's, it's it's one of the great challenges and problems, of course, with America. Finally, Zeke, this is not a question one normally asks one's doctor, but since we're on Lit Hub, we need a, a, a literary ending here. People, of course, should pick up your book, Which Country Has the World's Best Healthcare? It's really a comprehensive tour of, of, of global systems and gives uh, beginners like myself a really good introduction to, to the challenges and problems and opportunities with, with healthcare. But we're all locked inside. I'm sure even you are, are, are conforming with the quarantine. What else should people be reading apart from your book? Well, I like history. And so the books I've been reading, uh, I just picked up a book called Young Ben Franklin, uh, written by a man named Buckner. Uh, and it's about Benjamin Franklin up through his, uh, I think, 42nd, 43rd year when he uh, stopped being a printer because he had made so much money and then started doing all the other things that he's famous for, you know, his scientific experiments with electricity, his uh, work as a diplomat, his work as a politician in the United States. Uh, I have long said that uh, Benjamin Franklin is the uh, probably the most, the smartest person ever uh born in the North American continent. He really was a world-class in everything, printer, writer, journalist, politician, diplomat, scientist for his age. He won the equivalent of the Nobel Prize, the Copley Medal from the Royal Society in Britain. Um, it's fascinating about how he came to be. Uh, uh, so I like that. I also have read a biography about, I'm uh, reading a biography about uh, Lyndon Johnson, uh, the, the Robert Cairo book. I particularly like The Master of the Senate, how you see a man who knows how to wield, po collect political power and wield political power to get legislation passed. It's fascinating. And in that same regard, um, we recently were in Antarctica uh, just before COVID hit in, in around New Year's. And uh, the book, The Last Great, uh, the last place on earth, uh, it's called, the the race uh, to get to the South Pole, um, uh, the race that Amundsen, uh, the Norwegian explorer Amundsen wins. Fascinating book about different cultures, different approaches to leadership. And uh, if you're at all interested in, in leadership in the South Pole and exploration, it's an amazing, interesting book. Uh, and uh, actually has a lot to say, actually, I think about this moment and about the kind of leadership you want in a very difficult time with lots of challenges and a lot of unknowns. Uh, let suffice it to say, uh, Amundsen beats Scott and Amundsen is much the better leader. You've been listening to Keynote, hosted by me, Andrew Key. Make sure to join us the rest of this season as we explore how to fix capitalism. Make sure to visit us at lithub.com where you can subscribe to the show in iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. While you're at it, if you enjoyed what you heard, we'd appreciate a rating on iTunes. Or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show, that would also help too. Today's episode was produced and edited by Justin Alvarez and the team at LitHub Radio. See you next week, and thanks so much for listening.